Uh, the reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, and verses 1 to 17. It's page 1134 in the Pew Bibles. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, uh, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those of you who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, good morning. It's lovely to see you all even if it has to be from this scary place up here, it's still lovely to see you all. Um, 
I would love to start by sharing a story. A young man who is struggling with his own devotional life, with his Bible reading, with his prayer time, goes to his pastor quite embarrassed about it. And he's really nervous, and he goes up to his pastor, he says, Pastor, I'm really sorry, but when I read the Bible, sometimes I don't understand what I'm reading. The pastor thinks for the moment, and then he says, well, you know what? Sometimes I don't understand the full nutritional value of what I'm eating. But I know that it goes in, and it does me good. Yes, but pastor, the young man said, sometimes I don't even remember what I've read. Well, said the pastor, I can't remember what I ate last Wednesday lunchtime, but I know I wasn't hungry for the rest of the day. The young man had one more pressing question, a question that had been making him feel quite guilty, actually. He said, well, my biggest issue is that when I try to pray, I'm so tired, life is so busy, I just end up falling asleep. The pastor looked in his eyes and he smiled and he said, you know, I never chastised my children for falling asleep in my arms. In fact, I always hoped that they would. And here in Romans 8, we have a beautiful passage about how God relates to us, how much he loves us. And yes, there is a place for being proactive and earnest in in deepening our relationship with God. But we must remember that we know God because of the power and the love and the unveiling of the Holy Spirit. We should be earnest, but never earning. And so what about this adoption metaphor that's that's in Romans 8? It's kind of it's very thick in there. You can't, you can't get away from the language of heirs. You can't get away from the language of sons. You can't get away from the language of slaves um, and the rest of it. But I just, following on from the royal wedding, my, my head is still very much in the, in the gear of imagine what it would be like to be a royal. Scrap that. Imagine what it'd be like to not grow up a royal and then for the queen to wander in here this morning, say, James, I want you in my family. You're going to get a crown. You're going to get all the power. You're going to get all the responsibility. You're going to get all the riches. That's quite something. It's quite something. But I love what Simon Ponsonby says. God has adopted you And the world has nothing on this. The world has nothing on this. Nothing can compare to this. Nothing can compare to the fact that we get to cry to the creator of the universe, Abba, Father. These are the words that Jesus used to express the very essence of his bond with his father. And consider for a moment how deeply Jesus knew his father that he only did and he only said what he saw and heard his father doing and saying. And in fact, in I think on over 250 occasions in the New Testament, Jesus refers to his God as father. There's no doubt that his relationship with his father is incredibly close. And we get to address God in the same way. We get to relate to God in the deep fatherly son way like Christ did. You know, it's amazing. Jesus doesn't hoard this intimate relationship, but he extends it to us. 
And just like if the queen were to adopt me, if I get adopted by the father, I get to share in the riches, the responsibilities, the authority, the power, the glory, and the suffering with my co-heir, Christ Jesus. Now, at the moment, we've got three weeks kind of looking at the Spirit. So Tim last week spoke about Pentecost. And I think next week we've got um, a lovely lady called Lucy Pepiat, who's one of my old lecturers, coming to speak about the Trinity. So today in Romans, I really want to kind of continue on focusing on the work and the nature of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at Romans 8, verse 15, we notice this kind of key little this little key thing, it says, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. By the Spirit. So, if this morning you're in a place where you're not quite sure how to relate to God, or you're not quite sure what it means that God is your Father, you're not quite sure what it means to be free from the slavery of fear, or you're not quite sure what it means to know God closely, ask the Spirit to help you. As John Calvin explains, the Spirit pours this confidence into our hearts so that we dare invoke God as Father. I'll just reread Romans 8, 14 to 15 again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we can walk by the spirit, knowing that we are fathered. We can walk by the spirit, fathered and fearless. And we get to cry, Abba, Father, now for, for Paul, who was a Jew, he would have grown up being taught not to pronounce God's name, Yahweh. He would have grown up pronouncing Heshem, which literally means the name. So you're not using God's name, you're just referring to God's name. Yet here he is commending the church, not only to call God Yahweh, but to call God by a very intimate name, Abba, Dad. And a lot of people take issue with the radical intimacy of this language. If you look around, you'll find plenty of scholars who will um, feel deeply uncomfortable claiming that it's irreverent, claiming that they can do something to justify another interpretation. But the thing is that Abba would have been one of the first words on the lips of a Jewish child. And they would have carried that address for their father all the way into adulthood. And it was seen as a term of wholehearted trust, reverence, and a term that a pure, innocent child would use. So I want to suggest this morning that actually to call God dad is not a soft, fluffy thing. It's not a, like a Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing. It really is a brave and rich thing that you and I, we can come to God and we can ask him any question. That we get to trust and lean on him in any circumstance. That we can feel his embrace by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we don't need to embellish our words or hide anything from him because he is our father 
and he cares for us and he nurtures us. And it's worth remembering the the story of the Last Supper where one of Jesus' closest friends felt so comfortable that he could lean on Jesus' lap. He was comfortable referring to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And on the, the first one leaning is also the last one standing when Jesus dies at the cross. And I think that says something about how John understood his relationship with God. So perhaps the biggest issue for us is not necessarily that God is a dad, but perhaps that we project our own experiences and our own responses of dad, human dad, onto God. And it's not easy to see God as father if you were unplanned. It's not easy if you were unwanted, abused, ignored, neglected, an inconvenience, an embarrassment, or less preferred. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to have grown up with a wonderful father, but I have to say, even at his best, he's still simply a pale analogy of God. And our fathers at their worst are nothing like God. So we get to walk by the Spirit, fathered and fearless. And we get to cry, Dad, in close intimacy and in obedience. For you see, as heirs with Christ, we get to know the secrets of kingdom running. We get to know what God wants to do, what his heart breaks for, what he's excited about, what he hopes for, his future plans. And we get to obey the best instructions anyone could ever wish for. God the Father entrusts his children with a lot. And so that can actually be quite scary. I I don't know if any of you noticed that in verses 4 to 12, there's a stark contrast that's been made between flesh and spirit. It's kind of, Paul is fairly uncompromising. You can't have your feet in two homes in in his book. You either live by the Spirit or you live by your own selfish human agenda. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. And the choice has a consequence. It's a choice between life and becoming lifeless. You cannot afford to have your feet in two homes. And being adopted in Paul's day meant that you would take on the instructions and values and responsibilities of your new household. But in doing so, it also means that you would completely lay down and relinquish the instructions, the values, and the heritage of your past. It's a complete turnaround. And um, this is a turnaround not only of actions and thought, but also of thoughts that um, in verses five to seven, Paul talks a lot about setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. He says it numerous times. And the setting of the mind there is, is really talking about how we see the world and how we respond to the way that we see the world. It's a worldview thing. So living by the Spirit leads to a change in the way that we think. 
I would go as far to say that actually Paul is saying here, living by the Spirit means the first thing that we should think is, Dad, help me. Father God, come. I need you. And in this passage, we are urged to destroy all the sin in our lives continually by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit sits towards the end of um, Romans 8.15, which is um, Paul's way of emphasizing that it's by the Spirit. It's to say that actually, if you want to fight the sin in your life, that's motivated by the Spirit. If you want to cry out and give your obedience, your submission, your all to God, that is a work of the Spirit. It's not something that we can simply conjure up on our own. And Jesus talks about this. So in John 16, he talks about the fact that actually um, it is the Spirit who convicts us of sin. So it's not like Paul is expecting um, resisting sin to be straightforward for the believer. Actually, the Spirit convicting us can be quite uncomfortable, can't it? It's recognizing that we've messed up. But the reason Paul expects us to have a ruthlessness towards sin is that because sin is below our stature as sons and heirs. It's less than who God has made us to be. And Paul sees this resistance to sin as a day-by-day thing. In verse 2, Paul uses a, a Greek word that I can't pronounce called peripatusin, which means walking. Walking, constantly walking. That this living out of our adoption, this living by the Spirit, this living by the Spirit, farther than fearless, is a day-by-day walk. I think there's also something in this, um, this Abba Father phrase that we have here that's quite relevant to us at St. Swithins. I say very poignant for us at St. Swithins. Which is that... Abba Father is a combination of Greek and Hebrew. And Paul is using both languages deliberately to say that no one's excluded. No one's excluded. No language misses out. No age misses out. No culture misses out. And we're quite a diverse community here, aren't we? I think. And I really like that. But it does mean, actually, when we look at the way that we each walk by the Spirit day by day, that that might look differently for one another. And that's okay. And Paul is writing to a church that is caught up in all these kind of distinctions of culture and, 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 and language and nation. And he's most concerned about it. So what he does is he just bulldozes in with quite uncompromising language about being family and everyone being involved and leaves no room for confusion over the matter. In this passage we have this morning, nearly all of the pronouns and verbs that are used are plural. We, we, we. And at that time, um, a household, a family would have been much different to our definition of family today, which is quite a Victorian definition of family. And um, I don't know if the 2.5 children is still true, but it's still, when, I, when someone says family to me, that's the picture I have in my head. And, um, but in, in that time, a family was much wider. It included multiple generations. It included slaves. 
You are all in the family. So this adoption is available for everyone. This walking by the Spirit is for everyone. You are all in the family of God if you want to be. It also means that the problem of sin and the need for salvation, the need for redemption, is a ground leveler. Living by the Spirit is not something that is earned. It's not limited to certain types of people. Everyone can have the office of an heir. And there's no hierarchy. So if you've disqualified yourself from relating to God as Father, today might be a good day to challenge that. Challenge that thought. Ask questions of that thought. And perhaps a good question to ask is, is God big enough to handle the things that I choose to count myself as disqualified with? Is he big enough to handle my things? And actually, when we go through Scripture, we can see that throughout the course of humanity, God is always bigger than what we choose to disqualify ourselves with. He's always bigger. So in Genesis, what we tend to think about is the fact that... um, Mankind messed up, then mankind gets kicked out the garden because it's done wrong and it's been punished. But actually, the first thing that happens after Adam eats Adam and Eve eat that apple, the first person to speak is God. And he doesn't say, Adam, you're in real trouble. I'm out to get you. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam thought, I'm in real trouble. God's out to get me. I need to hide and do the fig thing. God thought, Adam, where are you? And it's, it's funny for an all-knowing, all-present God to ask that question, Adam, where are you? Like, surely he knows? I've only spotted this recently, but why does he ask that question? Perhaps part of it is that it's an expression of grief. That God feels the loss of Adam hiding. God feels that his family has been shaken up. And yes, in the end, God does send Adam and Eve from the garden, but he goes with them. He's an aching God. There's a lot of voids in his family. Something's got to miss. Something's got to miss. He wants us in his family. And my final kind of uh, point on walking by the Spirit, being fathered and fearless, is about that thing of fearlessness, that we get to cry out to, to God our Father even when we're scared, even when we're in pain, even when it hurts that he is Abba, even when there's agony. Romans 8.15 uses this word crazo, the kind of by the spirit we cry, crazo. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And the verb appears often in scripture to talk about an individual crying out to God. In the Old Testament, often that was crying out to God on behalf of a whole nation, that the nation needed saving, that the nation was in trouble. 
In the New Testament, crazo is frequently used when people meet Jesus and they're desperate for healing, they're desperate for deliverance, they're desperate for help. Crazo is also the verb that's used when Jesus cries out on the cross. It's not a small, timid cry. It's a shriek. It's a scream. It's violent. It's vocal. It's unmistakable. It's like when you're in a, in a family home and you can hear a child wherever you are and that scream just kind of shakes the building. It's that kind of level of cry. That's what crazo means. So it's not like we suddenly become children of God and suddenly everything's hunky-dory. It's not as if suddenly life is easy. But Romans 8 teaches us a little bit about how to navigate this suffering as God's children. That first of all, we navigate it with the interceding, compassionate assistance of the Holy Spirit. In fact, being in step with the Spirit does not mute or even dull our cries. Being in step with the Spirit means that the Spirit gives us a cry. The passage shows us that we still groan when we have the Spirit. And perhaps we groan even more because if the Spirit is showing us what he wants to do and how much he loves this world and, and how much he cares for this world. And then we think about the disparity and how much brokenness there is in the world, how much our lives are messed up and how much we're hurting. That pain is all the more painful. And I notice it in Christian community a lot actually when, when there are arguments. When there are arguments, people kind of expect us as, as God's family to kind of all be kind of nice and kind to one another and to you know, do that beautiful body of Christ, representative of Christ thing. So when there are arguments, we're more offended than when there are arguments in other contexts. Because we know God has more for us. We know he has more for us, and that's painful. But whatever our suffering is, God does not abandon us. He is present with us by his spirit, and he is Abba, even in the agony. Simon Ponsby says it like this. The chasm between reality and the hope produces a deep longing and sighing. And this passage promises that suffering and sighing are not the last word, but glory is. So walking by the Spirit isn't easy. It does not mean ignoring or feeding our brokenness. It means walking bravely with God in the midst of challenges. And the Spirit enables us to know God as wonderful Father, even in the midst of that pain. And um, this is one of the things that I think um, we really need to remember when we talk about experience the Spirit or the Lord being with us, is that it's not like we do the spiritual okey-cokey that we say the right confession and then he's here. Or that we say a flamboyant prayer and then he's here. Or we sing the kind of right kind of songs and he's here. The idea, the real idea, the the truth is that the Holy Spirit is always here. And he's been with us since the beginning of creation, hovering over the waters, breathing God's life into Adam and Eve, in a burning bush, 
on the top of a mountain, on the battlefield, in the dungeons, at the parting of the seas, at Calvary, on the third day, in the church, in the world. The Spirit loves being here, and he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He's a person, and he's not a weird, ethereal presence, and he bears all the personality traits of Christ. So perhaps if you are scared of what the Holy Spirit might do in your life, think about when Jesus was about to leave, and he's talking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit, and he says, another will come. Another. And that kind of suggests that, well, Jesus is the first, and then there's a second like him. So if Jesus is anything like Christ, then, uh, sorry, if the Spirit is anything like Christ, then he's not out to manipulate us, or to get us, or to humiliate us, or to chastise us. And perhaps when we look in Scripture what the Holy Spirit does, or we see the Holy Spirit at work in certain ways, we might be quite anxious. That prayer, come Holy Spirit, come, might be something that we actually don't want to pray. Maybe the miraculous healing is something that you don't find easy to believe. Maybe tongues is just a little bit weird, a bit of the way that spirit works that you're just not okay dabbling with. Perhaps tithing is too great a cost. Perhaps we're suspicious of the prophetic. Perhaps patience is too tall an ask. Perhaps standing up to someone at work looks like career suicide. Perhaps spiritual abuse in the past means that we struggle to engage with God in the present. Perhaps sexual impurity is going to require more self-control than we believe we could ever practice. Perhaps our mental health messes with how we perceive the spirit. There are lots of reasons why we might be afraid of the work of the spirit. But I love that old um, liturgical refrain that's used amongst all kinds of traditions. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Should we try that? God is good all the time. God is good. And so we can know that his spirit is good, that God stands at the door and he knocks, that he can come in lots of different ways. He can come in pictures, dreams, scripture, words of knowledge, interpretation, tongues, wisdom, art, culture, conversation, relationships, and thank goodness for food. Put that one in there. Pretty much anything can be harnessed for the work of the Spirit. Pretty much anything can be harnessed for God to speak, even silence. Even silence. And if God seems to be silent in your life right now, that's an incredibly uncomfortable place to be, and I've known it. But it's not because he doesn't have an answer or that he's developed laryngitis. Sometimes his answer is silence. It's like when a child comes crying to their parent and simply all the parent has to offer to console them is their presence. It can be a silent understanding, a silent knowing, a silent listening, a silent waiting, a silent crying. Often God speaks 
but don't be afraid of the silence too. And perhaps you might say to me this morning, well, you know what, God speaks to other people. He speaks to other people, he speaks to other people, but he's never spoken to me. The thing is that's just not true. It's just not true. You know, Jesus tells us that my sheep hear my voice. So it's not an issue as to whether God communicates or not. And it's not an issue as to whether I am able to hear him or not. My sheep hear my voice. So the challenge is recognizing and embracing all that God is, says, and does. And I've noticed that as uh, humankind, we've found a few ways to avoid that challenge. So um, perhaps someone's come up to you before. And they've said, I've got a prophetic word for you. And you go, oh, well, I'm not sure that's for me. It's too weird. I'm not important enough. There's no way that God could give me that kind of promise. I don't deserve that sort of fanfare. The question is, do you know who you are? You are a child of God. He has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. He has life in all its fullness for you. He is for you, not against you. Another thing that we do sometimes is perhaps God's voice comes like a small whisper. Maybe it's just a little stream of consciousness. Maybe it's a little idea. Maybe it's a quiet suggestion from a friend. Some kind of normal, understated way. And in that instance, the way that we tend to disregard it was go, oh, that was just my imagination. It's too normal. It doesn't come with a grandiose fanfare of a prophet. It can't be God. The question in that situation is, do you know who you are? You are God's child, and he wants to whisper in your ear a love that throws out fear, the mysteries of heaven, and the answers to your tears. God wants to whisper in your ear a love that throws out fear, the mysteries of heaven, and the answers to your tears. And sometimes if we don't like his answer, we might go somewhere else to get the answer that we want. I know I was like this with my parents. If I wanted more pocket money, to, or I could go down to the shop and get sweets. Go, Dad, 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 can I have some more money? No, 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 no. Mom, 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 can I have some more money? Oh, yeah, I guess you could go into the bureau and get some out. You know, it's that sort of thing of, we do it all the time. And we can do it with God. Sometimes we're so focused on getting the answer we want rather than the answer we need. Francis Chan, who's written this, this amazing book, and by the way, there are still a few copies at the back about engaging with the Spirit of God and about dealing with our fears around the Spirit of God. He says this, there's a huge difference between believing what God has promised and praying for things that you'd like to be true. I have another observation. Perhaps if God speaks and he says something that's too big an ask, we might reduce it to something less big. We might go, well, that's not achievable, so I'll take the small chunk of it that I can accomplish in my own strength and something I can control. And many of us really don't want to be led by anyone other than ourselves. And that's a challenge 
That's a challenge I think we all face. Sometimes if it's too little an ask, if it's a small insignificant thing, we go, is God really interested in that? No, I'll just do it my own way. If it's too inevitable, we might not bother God with it at all. Um, one of the cases where I felt God's spoken to me really clearly recently has been about my move to Bath. But I have to be honest with you, moving to Bath was a pretty scary thing for me. Um, for lots of reasons. But actually, at the core of it, there are some things that I get quite anxious about. That a big move to a new place, a new job, a new bit of ministry set me right at edge. And so I knew that before I came, and I talked, I talked to my family, I talked to my friends about it, I tried to weigh it up. I think I may even mention some of those anxieties in my interview, which probably is not the best way to get a good rapport, but I'm here. So, um, um, but the Spirit continued confirmed to me that this was the place I was called to be. And God has provided for me and helped me walk through this season and settle in, and I am starting to settle in, and it's helped me to face some of my anxieties and my fears and to not let them drive me. The way that his spirit's been at work in order to do that is so much better than the plan that I would have had sketched out. His desires are good. The desires of the spirit are good. The ways of the spirit are guaranteed and they're better than our agendas. Therefore, when we are in step with the Spirit, we have no reason to fear. And I sort of, I know this to be true. I know that when we walk by the Spirit, we can live farther than fearless. But I think the deal breaker for me is that I'd rather be overwhelmed by the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit to the point where actually perhaps he's more than I want to handle, then be overwhelmed by my anxieties. I want to be in a place where I know the love of God, where I can walk by the light of his presence, and where I can be free from fear.